preachers, we, we like to sort of pass over the salutations and closing of uh, New Testament letters, sometimes thinking that uh, they're nothing more than a conventional form of uh, saying goodbye. But what is missed often is that there's uh, oftentimes very meaningful spiritual truth. And I know as I closed the uh, preaching of the first epistle of Peter, I got to the last section, and I was not sure whether or not I was going to include the last couple verses, but I thought there was so much in the verses prior, I thought that I, I had to preach that separately, and I'm very grateful I did, because there were some incredible um, meaningful nuggets and priceless gems that were actually in those last couple verses. You know, um, so often we we end up thinking that these these uh, letters, as they begin and as they end, it's little more than the same as when we answer hello, when we uh, answer our phones. Uh, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, because if we regarded them as, the, as we should, we would find that they enrich our spiritual lives and really round out our experience with a greater depth and knowledge of the Word of God. But you see, today often in the, uh, in the world of churches, the church growth movement seems to be viewed as more significant and more important than any other single factor in the church's, uh, um, the church's exist- existence. And like I've said before, when I meet with people or I, they find out that I'm a pastor, the first thing that they ask me is, how many people? Go to your church. And it seems to never fail. That's, that's what it is. Um, and they see significance of truth based on how many people attend. That's not true. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we don't adopt a smaller is better attitude either. Um, No one can read the book of Acts with an open mind and and come to that kind of conclusion. The more significant factor in the book of Acts is that the greater numbers and deeper faith really should go hand in hand. And so when a church boasts of great numbers, they normally need to just replace and constantly work at getting new people to replace the people that quietly go out the back door. And it seems as though most of the time the depth of faith is really not a factor in the church's program. And so you have these megachurch pastors hosting seminars on church growth, factors that build up spiritual death and growth in faith Um, are put aside so that they can have uh, 
uh, sermons and seminars on growth and numbers. And if you look at the dominant themes of these seminars, the chief end of these churches seems to be just to grow larger. Any other objective view is considered secondary to that. Now, this view faces a rather questionable standing when compared with the New Testament teaching and the church's chief um, objective and, and purpose. And most churches, especially in the Reformed tradition, the catechisms all begin with the same question. The Westminster Greater Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is, a man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. That should be our goal. But the 21st century church, especially the Western church, pays sort of superficial lip service to that theme. And they really start to neglect uh, its priorities of giving God the glory. Actually, the shallowness of contemporary Western Christianity um, ends up having a a very uh, pathetic pattern of, of just bringing in people getting them to think highly of the church or the pastor. Not how, how is he teaching us? Is he giving us food that is spiritual nourishment for our growth? And I think we see that it's following the European pattern of Christianity. In most European countries today, despite their rich Christian heritage, Christianity is is mainly just tolerated as a marginal and uh, irrelevant factor in the greater culture. Our country is really not that far behind that. Even though the European countries have such rich heritage, the only way that Christians will ever regain their former honor in our culture is for us to return to the biblical roots and purpose of the church, and that's to glorify God. All the factors of commitment and conduct that make this objective possible is the only strategy that will restore the robust and relevant Christianity to this culture. The battle for our culture really isn't going to be won by conservatives or by Christian political activists. Though either or both of those groups might be used by God to to effect positive change, the battle really is won by God, by divine intervention, not by anyone's political strategies. Christians who make their boast and faith but who live lives outside, little different from the world that they belong to, really are not going to make a difference in culture. We, need, we will come into church and 
we will say that we are the light of the world and that we offer the only hope. But then we get into the world and we act as though we don't have to be that light. We don't, we have to be so loving and mushy gushy that they never do hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only way a person can be saved. All Christians need to understand that they cannot marginalize their faith in the world. They have to be bold in their faith. They have to take their faith into this disgusting culture in which we live. The only way for us to do that is to progress in spiritual growth. And it doesn't matter how long you have been saved. Some people, some Christians are sort of slow to learn. Others grow quickly. But the main thing is that you desire to be more and more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Become conformed to the image of Him. And the master key to that spiritual growth is the glory of God. Christians grow most when their focus on living is for the glory of God. Confessing our sins is an expression of humility. And that's a matter, a major key to spiritual growth. But you know that's very difficult to do. It's hard to admit our sinful behavior. And so many people end up holding up the pastor as if he has come to this point of sinlessness and so therefore that he can live that sinless life and I can go about doing what I want because I'm not a pastor. It's true that the community may look at me more than they look at you. But think of the effect of if they looked at you and they saw a person who was fully devoted to the glory of God. There was a time when Frederick II, who was an 18th century king of Prussia, he went to inspect um, the uh, Berlin prison system. He thought, I need, to, I need to see who these people are that were in prison. And when he greeted the prisoners, they all just had cries. And they, they fell on their knees and protested to Frederick II how unjust their imprisonment was. Well, while, while listening to these people, Frederick's eye caught this man off into the corner of the prison, seemingly unconcerned with all the commotion. So Frederick goes, why are you here? The man said, armed robbery, your majesty. Were you guilty? Oh yes, indeed, your majesty. 
I entirely deserve all my punishment. At that, Frederick summoned the jailer. He said, release this guilty man at once. I do not want him to be kept in this prison where he will corrupt all the other fine, innocent people that occupy it. You see, we're all prone to shift responsibility of our sin away from ourselves and blame our circumstances, our environment, or other people. And in doing so, we fail to glorify God, but also we fail to grow spiritually. In his book, By Divine Design, Dana Keyes tells the story of a man who, whose name was Connie Stevens. And he took over as a pastor of a large southern church after spending eight years ministering in Moscow. And then he also went to other Eastern European cities some years ago. And while he was gone, a lot of things changed, especially in America. He found that the world of technology was at its cutting edge here. There were cable TV, computers, cell phones, and it was all really confusing to Connie. So when Pastor Stevens complained to his new secretary that he didn't think that this paging device that these folks were asking him to wear so that they could get uh, a hold of them at any point, his secretary looked at him and said, uh, Pastor, you're not wearing your pager, you're wearing your garage door opener. And I think that explained why his pager wasn't having much success opening his garage door as well. But you see, Pastor Stevens had all the tools. He just needed a, a little good information on how to use them. Christians today have all the tools for spiritual growth. We just need a little information on how to use them. The, all the information and tools that God has given us for our growth. And so it's my intention this morning to give you some information so that you might grow spiritually. So let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's the final two verses of Second Peter chapter 3. We'll look at verses 17 and 18. Starting with verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now we think that we can all see that the proposition Peter's second epistle is that if you grow in knowledge you will have less danger of falling away. And in this epistle, Peter tells us both how to grow in knowledge of Christ and also warned us about the threats to that knowledge of Christ. He hits both of these themes one last time as he closes this letter. And he does, does this by telling us how high the stakes are. If you do not grow 
in knowing Christ, you will fall away. And you won't want to do that. Because Jesus deserves all worship, glory, and honor due Him to the day of eternity. I'd like first for you to look back at verse 17 of our text, and we can see where uh, he repeats this tone of this final challenge. It's gentle, it's loving, but it's urgent. Peter repeats the word beloved. He actually does that five times in this epistle. And that should really jump off the page for us, setting in our hearts the tone of this exhortation of Peter's. He starts off verse 17 by saying, Therefore, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Well, knowing that there will always be the ignorant and unstable who twist Scripture to their own eternal destruction. And so he says, be on guard so that you do not be carried away with the the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. Again, Peter is talking to Christians. He's talking to the beloved. What kind of Christian is Peter talking to? He's talking to stable Christians. Well, how is it then that we as stable Christians maintain that stability until Christ comes? As stable Christians, how do we avoid ever being carried away with the error of lawless people to our own eternal destruction? Well, we do this by heeding this gracious warning of Scripture. We do this by coming to church every week to be reminded and instructed in the true Gospel and the whole Gospel. We do this by always taking with the utmost seriousness the closing words of Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. What's beforehand? What did he know beforehand? Knowing the Scripture. We can see in verse 16, as we looked at this last week, that Peter is equating Paul's writings with Scripture. Because he says, talking about Paul's writing, he uses the, the term other scriptures. So he's lumping them, Paul's writings, with other scriptures. And scripture is a term found in the Bible 50 times. And it's never ever used for anything other than the books of the Old and New Testament. And by this time that Second Peter is written, all of Paul's epistles... Uh, which we have in our Bible, were written. And so the early church had already received Paul's epistles as inspired Scripture. And because that illustration that we see there, we can have confidence in the canon of Scripture that these first century believers and apostles saw that these were truly part of the New Testament. These books were written while the apostles were still alive. And they were already recognized as inspired Scripture. And so as we saw last week, it says that some passages of Scripture were difficult. 
But one thing it doesn't say is that they are impossible to understand. They are impossible for some people. The natural man. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So the natural man cannot grasp the truth that these scriptures teach. And again, this is isn't teaching that some scriptures are impossible to understand. But there are difficult passages in Scripture. And so therefore we must rely on the Holy Spirit to guide and inform our study. And when we come to difficult passages of Scripture, we need to be on guard against our natural inclinations. A lot of times we go, well, I'm not really sure what that is, and they skip over. That's the hardest part about being an expository preacher. I know that when I preach certain verses, it's going to affect certain people very clearly. But I'm not here to preach to you folks so that you end up going, thank you, Brendan, for skipping over that tough verse. I guess I, I sort of come prepared for the rocks and the rotten fruit. And I think any pastor needs to do that. Is to say, you know what? I am here not to write the mail, but to deliver it. And so we need to end up making sure that we don't skip over those difficult passages or just really quickly adopt a position and then move on. We all have a responsibility to carefully study the Bible and what it says and what it means. We should actually emulate the Bereans. We can read about that in Acts 17.11, where they diligently, they were more, more noble than the Thessalonians, and they searched to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true. But we also need to patiently wait on the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we compare Scripture with Scripture, humbly seeking to discern the truth. This applies when we instruct others in the truth of God. Maturing Christians are to be established and stable in the truth. And this is a work of God. But God does use other believers to help in this process of maturing in faith. But we must remember it's, it is a work of God. And so you may have a firm grasp on some truth and you may be able to help a brother or sister who's struggling with that. You may help them understand it. And by all means, you should seek to help them in this difficulty. But you need to be patient with them, relying on the Word of God to convince them, not your arguments. Because here's the great danger. You may be able to convince them of the truth. You actually may be able to convince them quickly with your arguments. But if they are not convinced through Scripture, seeing all of Scripture together, they still may be unstable. They still may be in danger of twisting the Word of God. The scripture that we all hold in our hand 
is an incredible gift of God. We are blessed because we live in a time where we have access to the written Word of God in our own language and we can read it for ourselves. This is incredible. I once read a story of a Christian who was in a Nazi uh, prisoner of war camp. And the commanding officer of that camp knew that this man was a Christian. And so he gave this man the job of cleaning the toilets. Not only that, this Nazi officer decided he would take and use the pages of Scripture as toilet paper. And he would make sure that he threw it in the basket so that this Christian would see that. And we think that is absolutely disgusting and horrible. But do you know what that prisoner did? He took those pages and washed them. And he praised God that he had the Word of God through some person's ignorance. That is amazing. That precious Word of God. The Word of God was given with our salvation in mind. The Word of God was given with our growth in mind. As a matter of fact, if you'd please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 through 17. Starting with verse 14. Then how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you would please... Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll start with verse 10 and go through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, uh, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of all of them, 
the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he continues, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And John 20, 31 says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing you may have life in His name. Now you might remember we were just warned in verse 16 that unlearned and unstable men will twist Scripture. We were warned earlier all the way back in verse 3 that in the last days there will be scoffers. And even earlier still in chapter 2 we were warned that there will be false teachers. This is an epistle full of warnings. And I don't know about you, but I think it's a wonderful thing to be warned about dangers. But a warning is worthless if we do nothing with it. And so the Apostle Peter has warned and said, Beware. Verse 17, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfast steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. And so we need to beware. We need to watch out. We need to be vigilant. And don't ever think you're above being carried away with the error of the wicked. There are many who began the race well and have failed to finish. We must guard ourselves against the error of the wicked, lest we fall from our own steadfastness. We should be on guard to never be carried away by men of no principle from the steadfast relationship that we have with God. What absolutely amazes me is people would never think of letting a surgeon who has a laissez-faire attitude operate on them. You would never think of letting an unskilled pilot or one that has his faculties, maybe he's been drinking, fly a plane that you're going to ride in. You wouldn't think of having a mechanic who said, ah, yeah, I know your brakes are are bad, but you know maybe you could jam it in park or something. You would never accept that. And yet, there are people who go to churches who, who sit under undisciplined 
and callous people who ramble behind the pulpit, who have no integrity, no principles, and who will never teach the straight truth of the Bible. They will never go through a book of the Bible because there will be stuff that they think is way too much, way too too, uh, tough to preach through. So they go jumping around. And they have these topical sermons on how to have a better marriage, how to get along with your co-workers. I'll tell you what. I'm, I'm an implicational preacher. I will preach the Word of God and you know what it implies. You know how to have a better marriage when you see the glory of God. But there are people who will sit and listen to these people and being led away with error of the wicked. The Greek word wicked is athismos. And it refers to one who doesn't submit himself to the word of God. He has his own priorities. He's there for a job. He's there to make people like him. And in the world of religion, there are plenty of pastors who are not interested in accurately understanding and applying the Word of God either to the lives of the people or their lives themselves. And their preaching shows it. One of the biggest threats to your faith is not being taught properly the doctrines of the Bible. One of the biggest threats to your faith is not sitting under someone who knows how to properly interpret the Bible. If you listen to bad teaching and preaching, that can affect you. Now there's plenty of preachers who don't have seminary training. Charles Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, John Bunyan, Martin Lloyd-Jones... And although I don't fit in that, Brendan Ganser. But I'll tell you what. When I look at Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. A pastor who doesn't tremble in the pulpit is not one that you don't want to sit under. You want a man who is up there, his knees are shaking, and he goes, I have to get this right. I cannot just preach what sounds good. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus And we need to carefully understand the Word of God so that we can maintain our steadfastness and faith all the way through this this world. And we have to remember, we all start out as students. 
Students aren't scholars, but even scholars learn and glean from others. I am amazed that when I sit there and I listen to John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or some of the other men, they will say that they must study so that they can get it right. Those men never sit back and say, I've got it. I learned it. Need to study. When we talk about the doctrine and clarity of Scripture, we need to understand that even the most basic and fundamental truths need to be gone over and over again so that we can handle all things appropriately. We do need teachers. And it takes time. This is a big book. And you don't have to have a PhD to study and learn and know the Bible. But a teacher can help. The New Testament realizes along with us that we can be led astray by false teachers. But our own stability is a defense against this. And that's what our text talks about this morning. It doesn't talk about how fast we need to learn it. It says what you learn, you need to learn well. And what you learn, you need to apply. You need to be obedient in trusting the things that you're sure of. And that's why it's so important to be in a community of, so, of solid, strong, steadfast believers. When we have a Bible-saturated church, we move and grow in grace. We move and grow in knowledge. Our minds become saturated with Scripture. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is a connection between the way you live and the way you speak. You can sit there and talk all the biblical chin boogie you want. But what proves is your life, your manner of life. What better thing do you have to spend your time on? We should be so thankful to God who clearly reveals in His Word how to have one's sins forgiven, how to have eternal life, how to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And this doctrine is so important because the clarity of Scripture is denied by every false uh, 
theology and, and false doctrine out there with all these people thinking, well, you know what? You can't learn the Bible because it takes a priest or it takes a, a cult founder or you have to have this inner light to be able to do that. No, you don't. You can understand Scripture by putting your nose in it and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you. Now, I'm glad you listened to my sermons. I do want to help you in that. But I want to drive you to your knees and to the pages of Scripture so you learn to love, read, and study the Word of God. You were born again by the will of God, through the Word of God, because of the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible helps us to live for Christ and win others for Christ. The Bible helps us to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can learn and live Scripture. The Apostle Paul knew this. He says to live as Christ, to die as gain. Have you ever considered what that is? To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And so verse 18 of our text, it talks about continuing and growing. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's easy to see how verses 17 and 18 are connected. Because 17, we have that warning, beware. Verse 18, we have an exhortation, grow. You notice that Peter doesn't say, but be careful to obey the law so that you can be saved. Or be sure that you do good work so that you can inherit eternal life. No. He doesn't say that. He comes back to the root of all law-keeping and all the good works in grace. And that's in the personal experiential knowing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter closes his letters with these words because he's picking up on the same thing he started in chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Here he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter, in verse 2, uses the word multiplied. That in the Greek is the word plethuno. And it means to increase. To multiply. But then in verse 18, he uses the word grow, which is the Greek word akthano. 
which means to become greater, have an inward Christian growth. To better illustrate this, it's if you're building a hedge and you have saplings and you go, I need enough saplings to make a hedge. So you get enough saplings and then what do you do? You get them to grow. And so, one means to get more of, and the other is to increase what you have. To grow. We get more knowledge, then we increase in the understanding of that knowledge. And so in verse 18, we're called to grow. Only those who are regenerate and born again can truly grow spiritually. That's because all growth in life is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 3.7 says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives increase. Yet this is a command implying duty. There are two aspects to spiritual growth. Growth in grace and favor and in knowledge. Not mere information about personal intimacy and love of Christ. It's a warm call to draw ever nearer to Christ in ever sweet communion. Grace is the word carice, and it means unmerited favor. Although I love, I, you know, I, I think sometimes that that just takes the guts out of it. I think it's better when we say ill-merited favor. Unmerited favor makes it sound like you didn't, you didn't deserve it. But that you were on a neutral plane. You just didn't deserve. I think when we say ill-merited favor, we understand we do deserve. We deserve death and hell. So I love taking it even further taking us past neutral so that we understand that God took us from the pit to the pinnacle. And that's an entirely a gift of God. And yet, believers are exhorted to grow in it, to nurture it, to be strengthened by it. Let me tell you, grace is not static. Believers are to grow into grow in it until the day they die. And Peter's warning is otherwise they might be carried away by the lawlessness of false teachers. How do we do this? Peter counseled us in this earlier in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. In verse 3, Trust the sufficiency of the powerful gifts for life and godliness. Verse 4, attend to the exceedingly great and precious promises. Verses 5-7, through to faith diligently add virtue, spiritual knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Verse 10, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And then in verses 10, through 11, God promise, promises those things 
who do these things. He, he promises if you do. It says, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, we must be proactively working on it, energetically working on it, persistently working at at spiritual growth. Peter says positively do two things. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. And by the way, these aren't commands. These are commands. These aren't suggestions. We are commanded to do this. In order to be mature in faith, we must grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word that Peter uses is the word gnosis. And that's having a general knowledge of Christian religion. But it also goes deeper into a more perfect and enlarged knowledge in order to advance in your moral wisdom and your right living. By by the way, that right living and and doing what is right, it's right in sight of God. It's it's what we call righteousness. And that's the Greek word dikaiosune. It's it's the right living, the virtuous living, living in a in a way that is acceptable to God. Your number one priority should be to please Christ. You please him by knowing him. You please him by being conformed to the likeness of him. There's a difference between people who just attend a church service trying to be a good person and being seen walking in and out of the church. Filling that seat. The true Christian are those who come in seeking to glorify God. Responding by faith in what God has already done for you. The first magnifies the ability of people to be self-disciplined and and use some humanly innate willpower. The second is to make Christ look magnificent. Our obedience to the commands of Scripture is nothing more than a humble and joyful response to us hoping and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. But none of that would have happened if we would not grow in grace and knowledge so that we could first understand what all Jesus has done for us. And secondly, grow in grace and knowledge so we could put all these pieces together. Growing in both grace and knowledge is a community effort. We can't do it alone. We can't grow alone. We can't grow by using humanly engineered tools. People who go their own way or do it their own way are not growing. They're rebels. So if you're going to grow, it's by humbling ourselves. It's by coming together. And that's why communion is so wonderful. Because we come together as sinners saved by grace, confessing our sin, knowing that as you confess your sin, the person next to you is doing the same thing. That is such a great means of grace. You know, if we just knew a fraction of the future that God's making for us, 
if we could just begin to believe that all, all our deepest longings will be satisfied, that every good affection that we have will soar, that every proper relationship will be restored forever, and all pain and frustration and ugliness will vanish forever. If we could just believe what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, our hearts would be free from the greed and fears and lust of this world. We would escape from the corruption of this world and become partakers of the divine nature. The threat to the knowledge of Christ is real and it's extreme. And it can be summed up as people within the church who have assimilated to a secular age and deny a holy presence of Christ, a holy presence of God the Creator. The modern day church is often a threat to the knowledge of Christ. Because to know Christ is to know him as the one who has decisively intervened throughout history. He has decisively intervened in each of our lives. It's to understand that God is a promise-keeping God. He's not slow. He's not lazy. So even as you seek to know Christ through all of Scripture, we need to beware of false teachers who would seek to get in the way between you and that goal. The worst false teacher that you will ever encounter is the one in your own heart that enjoys believing falsehood. Beware of that guy. Do you want to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ? Do you want to listen to the whole Bible? Listen to what Peter says to us in this little epistle. Listen to Peter's testimony of what he wanted us to know before his death. He tells us that he wants us to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ by shunning false teaching, instead listening to the true message of God, the whole counsel of God. And I sincerely hope that each of you can say that you love Jesus. But if at one point you go, I don't love, love him as I should, that you would find a way to love him even better. Why is our faith so feeble? It's because we don't know him like we should. If we would increase our faith, then we must know Jesus as he is. We must live near the cross. We must think more about him. We think must think more of him. Perhaps you lack courage to stand up for Jesus in your 
workplace or your home. When we understand from the Bible that Jesus is God, how in the world can we be silent about Him? But yet, we bring shame to Him with our sinful mouths and our behavior. We bring shame to Him to all those who see and hear us. Sometimes we lack zeal for Christ and His kingdom because we're lacking in our knowledge of Him who died for us. You know, it's so fashionable to be a churchgoer. It should be fashionable to be a Christ follower. It's too easy to get into the rut of religion, of tradition, and have little or no love for Christ. To not have the zeal for Him that that we should have. To acknowledge Him for all He is. And may God in His great mercy cause each of us to grow in love and grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May He be pleased to have patience with us until we learn, get through our thick heads and bring us to our knees. Bring us to our knees before our Christ and our Lord and our King. May His kingdom grow and His people exalt Him with their words and their deeds. Let's do that day by day, week by week, year by year. Let's become more conformed to the image of Christ the King. Final words of Peter, to him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so wonderful to be able to turn to your word and to find the answers to the things that seem so difficult for society in which we live to comprehend. We are so grateful to you, Lord. Your word is so amazing, so powerful, so consistent, so true. You are such a great God. How privileged we are to know you, to be loved by you, and to serve you. May we be faithful in all things and always give glory and honor to you. We pray this in your Son's most precious name. Amen.